0: Wow, what a darkness to light testimony. I want to encourage you to encourage Riley. She'll be out in the lobby after the service, and I would encourage you to stop by and just take a moment and encourage her in her walk with the Lord. It is wonderful to be with you this morning. So excited to have the privilege to open God's Word with you. If you have your Bibles this morning, and we always hope you do, go ahead and be turning to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. While you're turning there, let me commend a couple of books to your Christian library and your reading. Number one is John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. This book, don't be deceived by its, what appears to be, brevity. It is chalked full of wonderful biblical theology, helping us to understand exactly what it does or what has happened to us as a result of what Christ has done for us. Redemption accomplished and applied. John Murray. The second book, which I wished I had grabbed off my shelf this morning before I stepped in here and I did not, and that is J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Both books that I would commend to your, uh, your reading and your hopefully growing Christian library. Let me pray for us before we turn our attention to our text for this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are our risen king. Thank you that you have won our victory. Thank you that you have defeated sin and death. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ alone. Would you be glorified and honored in the few minutes that we have together this morning as we turn our attention to your holy word. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a cartoon was once printed that depicted a pompous lawyer who was reading a client's last will and testament to a group of greedy relatives. You can almost picture the scene. And here is what that last will and testament read. It read, I, John Jones, being of sound mind and body, spent it all. But that's certainly not the message of the gospel, is it? When Jesus wrote his last will and testament for his church, he made it possible for us to share in all of his spiritual riches and in all of his spiritual blessings. Instead of spending it all, Jesus paid it all for us. He wrote us into his will. He died so that that will would be in force and he rose again that he might become our heavenly advocate, our heavenly lawyer, to make sure that his blood bought blessings were rightly and lavishly applied. In our text for this morning, Paul begins a sentence that in the original Greek actually doesn't end until verse 14. Verse 3 through verse 14, one continuous sentence in the Greek. Total of 202 words. One scholar referred to this passage as the most monstrous sentence conglomeration found in the Greek language. One clause builds upon another as Paul seems to almost lose himself in enthusiasm over what he's writing. And I think that Paul's desire here in what he's writing is to evoke a response of deep and humble worship in us by reminding us in a fresh way of the realities of our redemption in Christ. These 11 verses, verse 3 through verse 14, we'll spend the next 5 weeks, today and the next 4 weeks, trying to unpack these 11 verses. And these 11 verses encompass God's divine saving purposes for the church from eternity past to eternity future. It's Paul's outline, so to speak, of God's divine saving purposes. In verses 3 through 6, we'll see the past aspect of our salvation. We'll refer to that as election. We'll talk about that this morning and next Sunday morning. Verses 3 through 6 deal with the past aspect of our salvation. Verses 6 through 11 will present to us the present aspect of our salvation, namely redemption. Redemption. And verses 12 through 14 will point us to the future aspect of our salvation, that being our inheritance. God has given us, granted to us, the Holy Spirit, who is a divine deposit guaranteeing the inheritance which is to come. Some of the inheritance we have been given now and enjoy now, some of it we will enjoy in all of its full glory when we finally step across that line into eternity. With that being said, let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. If you have the ability, why don't you stand as we read God's Word together. Paul, the human author, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Scripture's divine author, pens the following words in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3-4. through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. You may be seated. I want to draw your attention to two specific things this morning from verse 3. I want us to take just a few brief moments and look at the source of all the blessings, all the many rich blessings that we have in Christ. And secondly, I want us to look at the scope of the blessings. If you're taking notes this morning, number one is source, or number one is, yeah, source, rather. Number two is scope. Let's look first at the source of our blessing. Look just at this phrase in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop right there at word number one. Blessed. Blessed. The original Greek word there is the word from which we derive our English word eulogy. Eulogy means to speak well of, literally to praise or to adore. Paul is saying, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Adored be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Worshipped be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is happening here in our text, friends, is that Paul's heart and mind have become so captivated as he considers the fathomless fountain of God's grace that he breaks forth an unbridled and exuberant praise. Blessed is the Lord. Blessed is God. As a matter of fact, your translation, look back down at your Bible for just a minute, your translation probably says, Blessed be God. Blessed be the God. And while that's not an incorrect translation, I think there is a little bit better translation. You see the to be verb doesn't exist in the original Greek language there. So what the text literally says is, Blessed is God. Blessed is God. And I think that's an important distinction, because I think to say blessed be God makes it sound like blessing or praising God is a wish rather than a declaration. I think Paul's making a clear declaration as he opens verse 3 here, blessed is God. And We see this in Romans chapter 1, uh, do we not? We, we see that uh, those, those men and women worshipped the creator, or the creation rather, than the creator who is blessed forever, right? They worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen, Paul writes. So how do we do this? How do we we bless God? How do we eulogize God? Well, we do so when we speak rightly or speak highly of Him. When we ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His great name. David says it this way in the Psalms. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. Psalm 34, verse 1. Now, That's convicting because as I think back over the last 167 hours since we assembled together last, grumbling, complaining, and arguing have probably come out of my mouth more than continual blessing of the Lord. That's a challenging thought. A challenging thought. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. Peter says it this way. He says, you, speaking about the redeemed, are a chosen race, Keep that, file that word chosen back here. We'll come back to it in verse 4. But he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that. So that what? Well, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light. You and I, as the redeemed, have the privilege of proclaiming the excellencies of God, which is, by the way, the vocation of eternity. So let's be practicing now what we will do for all eternity, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. And in the meantime, before we get there, before we get to heaven, if we need some help recounting or recalling the things for which God is blessed or for which God is ultimately praiseworthy, we can always turn our attention to the Psalms. Don't worry about trying to write down every single one of these references. Uh, All of my manuscripts are available. We'll point you to our website. Exactly what I have here in front of me, you can have access to Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning. So hit the website and download those notes if if you would like them and they would be of help to you. Uh, But that may keep you from feeling like you have to scribble so quickly. But again, if we need help before we get to heaven, recounting or recalling or thinking of things for which God is praiseworthy, all we need to do is open to the Psalms. Here's just a smattering of things for which God is praiseworthy. Psalm 7, 7, praise him because he is the Lord most high. Psalm 9, 14, praise him for his salvation. Psalm 21, 13, praise him for his strength and his power. Psalm 30, verse 4, praise him for his holiness. Psalm 47, verse 6, praise him because he is the king of the earth. Psalm 56.4, praise him for his word. Psalm 63.3, praise him because his steadfast love is better than life. Psalm 63.5, praise him because he satisfies your soul. Psalm 71.6, praise him because he has sustained you from your birth. Psalm 89.5, praise him because the heavens praise his wonders. Psalm 104.35, praise him for his justice. Psalm 139, 14, praise him because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Paul rightly declares, blessed is God. It's a declaration, not a question. Blessed is God. He alone is the source and origin of all of our spiritual blessings. James reminds us of that in James chapter 1, right? He says that every good and perfect gift comes from above, comes down from the Father of lights. And so for who God is and all he has done, his praise ought to continually be on our mouths. Paul goes on to say, he says, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there's complete equity, complete equality within the triune Godhead. But at the same time, there are roles. God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the third member of the triune Godhead the Holy Spirit. God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, though there is 100% equity. God the Father. And because of our union with Christ, if we're found in Him, sealed in Him, by virtue of our very union, God is also our Father. Paul writes concerning believers in Romans chapter 8. He says, You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption as sons whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Shielded from His justice because of what Christ has done for us, now He relates to us as Father. As Father. Lastly, Paul refers to Jesus as our Lord Jesus Christ. This communicates four things. This isn't on your outline, but just want to draw your attention to it. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Those four words communicate four things. Number one, Jesus' relationship to us as believers. He's our Lord. Notice that. Our Lord. Secondly, His name, Jesus, or Yeshua, means the one who comes to save His people from their sins. Third, His magisterial supremacy, he is Lord. Kyrios in the Greek, the one who sits enthroned on heaven's throne, he's Lord. But he's also our brother. Fourthly, his messianic title, Christ. The promised, long-awaited Messiah. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Number two on your outline, I want to draw your attention to the scope of our blessings. Look at this phrase. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Paul here gives us the reason that God is to be blessed, that God is to be eulogized, that God is to be spoken highly and rightly of. And he does so by answering a handful of questions for us here in this last phrase in verse 3. He answers the question, who's the benefactor of all of our spiritual blessings? God is. God, our Father, who alone is worthy of our praise and adoration. To whom are these blessings given? Well, Paul answers that question, to us, he says. That's a reference back to verse 2, the saints and believers, which is what we are if we know Christ savingly. Paul answers the question, With what have we been blessed? We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Where have we been blessed? Paul answers that question. In the heavenly places. And how have we been blessed? We've been blessed in Christ. You see, this sentence comprehensively summarizes everything that we as Christians have received through God's saving act in Christ. And you ask yourself well, what are some of these blessings? Paul says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. What are some of these spiritual blessings? Well, let your eyeballs fall down to your Bible again. And let's just scan the verses that follow as Paul begins to enumerate some of our spiritual blessings. Look at verse 4. He chose us in Him. That's a blessing. Look at verse 5. He predestined us to be sons and daughters. Verse 7. He redeemed us through Christ's blood. Verse 7, again, he's forgiven us of our sin. Verse 8, he's lavished his grace upon us. Verses 9 and 10, he's made known to us the mystery of his will. Verse 11, he's blessed us with an inheritance. Again, some of which we enjoy now and some of which we will be enjoying or will be fully realized in eternity. Look at verse 12. He's caused us to anchor our hope in Christ. And then look at verse 14. He gives us faith to believe the gospel message and he has sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit and he will make good on every single one of his promises. That's a guarantee. Those are just some of our spiritual blessings. Some of that which Jesus Christ has procured, secured for us as a result of his death and victorious resurrection. There's more that could be said about verse 3. But in the time that we have left, I want to draw your attention to verse 4. This will be the weight of our time together this morning. Number three on your outline this morning, if you are taking notes, is this. God is sovereign in election. God is sovereign in election. Let me draw your attention to this first phrase in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him even as he chose us in him. Chose is the Greek word eklegomai. It means to pick out or to select. Some of you were probably at the grocery store this week. And as I, from time to time, have the privilege to do some grocery shopping for my wife, I oftentimes see ladies, presumably moms, browsing through the fruit and produce selection, and there's a lot of choosing and a lot of picking that takes place right there. We pick up one piece of fruit or we pick up one vegetable and we look it over, we scan it, and, and we make a choice there. We make a selection. But the verb choose here, in the original language, it's reflexive, and here's what that means. It means that it's to be understood as possessive. In, under, in other words, what God chooses He chooses for himself to be his out of love. Not just a piece of fruit, not just a vegetable, not just making sure all dozen eggs aren't crushed, but God chooses and he chooses in a special way. He chooses for himself to be his. It's possessive in nature. God's choosing is never separated from his love. Now, theologically, theologically we refer to God's sovereign choosing as election. We refer to God's choosing or his selection of some people to be saved as election. You may have heard it referred to as unconditional election. That's one of the five doctrines of grace. You may have seen or may have done a study of the doctrines of grace. They're typically uh, given to us, or they come to us, rather, in the acronym TULIP. TULIP summarizes the doctrines of grace. TULIP stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And as a church, we hold firmly to these thoroughly biblical doctrines. These thoroughly biblical doctrines. But the doctrine of unconditional election is what Paul raises in our text for this morning, namely in verse 4. And what I want you to see this morning is God's absolute sovereignty in His election. God's absolute sovereignty in His choosing or selecting. Simply stated, if, if, if it can be simply stated, election is this. Election is the sovereign ordination whereby God in His infinite wisdom chooses some people out of, the, out of the mass of humanity to be the recipients of His saving grace while others aren't chosen for reasons that are a mystery to us but that are in no way a mystery to God. Election. It's the sovereign ordination whereby God in His infinite wisdom chooses some, not all, but some to be the recipients of His saving grace while others aren't chosen A mystery to us, but not a mystery within the Godhead. Not a mystery to God's own unsearchable counsel. Let me illustrate it for you in just a simple illustration here. Salvage yards. Ever been to one or ever seen one on TV? I like shows like How Things Work uh, on the Discovery Channel and the History Channel. Salvage yards, oftentimes used huge electromagnets to lift and partially sort scrap metal. When that magnet is turned on, a tremendous magnetic force draws all ferrous materials that are near it to itself. But at the same time, that magnet has no effect on non-ferrous metals, things like aluminum or brass or copper. In the same way, God's elective will irresistibly draws to himself those whom he has predetermined to love and to forgive and save while having no effect on those whom he has not chosen, on those whom he has not selected. It's a weighty doctrine. But your Bible presents it. And you might be sitting there saying to yourself, "But, but wait a minute, I thought God desires all men to be saved. Doesn't God desire all men to come to repentance? And the answer is yes. God does desire all men to be saved. God does desire that all men reach repentance. Paul says that, the very man who wrote our letter to the church at Ephesus here. He says that in 1 Timothy 2.4. He says God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter 3, 9. He says, God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so the question then is, is if God desires that all men be saved, if God desires all men reach repentance, then why aren't all men saved, and why don't all men reach repentance? And the answer is this. Sometimes God desires things that he doesn't decree. Sometimes God desires things that he doesn't decree come to pass. The converse of that is also true. Sometimes God decrees things that wouldn't cross, which his heart in an ultimate sense doesn't desire, the crushing of his son. Yes, Isaiah 53 says it pleased the Lord to crush him, but there is also a real sense in which it broke the heart of God So sometimes God desires things which he doesn't decree and sometimes God decrees things which break his heart. It's a mystery to us. But it's not a mystery in the unsearchable counsel of God. Sometimes God desires that which he does not will come to pass. God who's indelibly good genuinely desires that all men be saved but in his wisdom, in his infinite wisdom, he has not decreed that all men be saved. That's hard to understand. It's hard for me to understand. But I think that difficulty is eased a bit if instead of trying to figure out God's unrevealed secret will, we just simply in humility let God be God. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So much higher are His ways than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts if instead of trying to pry into the secret will and the secret mind of God, some things are revealed for us. Everything you have in your Bible is the revealed will of God. But God has a secret will that is not revealed to us. And If instead of trying to pry into the secret will of God, we just in humility let God be God. God does desire, genuinely desires, that all men be saved, but he has not decreed that all men be saved. And you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, well, well, that okay, but that doesn't sound fair to me. That's not equitable. It doesn't sound fair that God chooses some and doesn't choose others. Well, let me say this, friends. When it comes to salvation, you don't want fair. You don't want fair. You want mercy and you want grace. If fair is what we're looking for, then every single one of us, without exception, stands condemned in our sin and without hope. That's fair. That's fair. You see, fair is the opposite of mercy and grace. As a matter of fact, fair negates mercy and grace. Neither mercy or grace are fair, it's undeserved what makes grace and mercy so humbling is the very fact that no one deserves it, but yet because it pleases the Lord, he grants it to some. Write this verse down, Psalm 115.3. Just a good banner verse. Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. He can't lie, die, sin, or deny himself. But outside of that, God sits enthroned in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. whatever He pleases. And it pleases Him that some will be the recipients of His lavish grace and mercy. And there have been volumes that have been written on the tension that exists between God's divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God is 100% sovereign in election, God is 100% sovereign in his choosing. But at the same time, man, you and I, and everyone else on the face of the planet are responsible moral agents. And at face value, there's an apparent tension there. If God chooses who will come to faith, if God chooses the recipients of his lavish grace, then how can he, how can he hold accountable those whom he does not choose for their sin? How can he hold accountable those whom he does not choose for the rejection of him? You see, God's sovereign election and man's responsibility to repent and trust Christ can seem, let me underscore seem, italicize seem, put in quotes, seem, bold seem. It seems like an apparent contradiction. Those seem like irreconcilable truths from our limited, finite perspective. But the Bible has no problem putting those two truths on the same shelf right next to each other. God is 100% sovereign in election. At the same time, man is 100% responsible for his actions before a holy God. The Bible puts those two truths on the same shelf right next to each other. You see, the gospel according to Luke and Acts chapter 17, calls all people everywhere to repent, while at the same time Jesus said this in John chapter 6, he said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me enables him. He says just about 15 verses later in John chapter 6. While it's a mystery to us, it's not a mystery in the mind of God. These two truths, which seem to stand in complete contradiction to our finite understanding, find perfect harmony in the will of God. And that causes us just to stand back in humility and let God be God. A seminary professor once said, Try to explain election and you might lose your mind. But try and explain it away and you might lose your soul. Try and explain it, and you might lose your mind. Try to explain it away. Try to get rid of it. Try to water it down. Try to pretend as if those two truths do not exist, and you might lose your soul. Spurgeon once commented on the apparent tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. He said, I was asked to reconcile these two statements by a lady after a service, to which I answered, no, I won't reconcile those. They're friends. Friends need not be reconciled. We're to take these two truths and to know that they are equally precious portions of one harmonious whole. We're not to quibble over them or to indulge in foolish favoritism for one over the other. or to receive both with candid, large-hearted love for the truth. They're two jewels and we're to wear them both, to hold them both. Instead of struggling to reach an explanation, we would be much better off to let our hearts sing in overflowing adoration. Instead of grappling after an explanation, let's sit in humble adoration of who God is and how how He has decreed His redemptive will and plan. You say, well, what about man's will? Don't we, don't we have free will? Is God saving men against their will? And the answer is no. God's not saving men against their will. You see, oftentimes when people talk about man's will or you, you hear the term free will, it's as if we have the freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. But that's not the biblical explanation of human will. The way your Bible defines the use of human will, it, it confines it or it tells us that it is bound to our nature, So what that means is, if a person is not redeemed, if a person does not have a converted heart, then all they can do, the only bounds with which they can operate, are the bounds within the middle of that lost nature. So here's a weighty thought for you then. All a non-Christian has ever done before a thrice holy God is sin. That's it. Sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. We are mounting a debt of sin. There is no righteousness until a person steps from death to life, from darkness to light. So yes, man does have a will. And no sovereign election doesn't negate that. But we need to understand what our Bibles say about the very will that we have. Our will is bound to our nature. So, being redeemed, if that's true of us, we now have the ability to please God. We now have the ability to choose whether to sin or to choose whether to please God. We now have the ability to to make it our aim to please God. Whereas before, we were regenerated. We didn't have that ability. Election doesn't mean that there will be people in heaven who don't want to be there nor will, be, will there be people in hell who wanted to be saved but couldn't because they weren't elect. Election keeps no one out of heaven. I want you to hear this, okay? Election keeps no one out of heaven who would have otherwise been there, but it does, in fact, keep a whole multitude of people out of hell who would have otherwise been there. God is sovereign in election. Number four on your outline, God is gracious in election. I want you to focus on this phrase, before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. This phrase points us to the timing of our election. Not only did God sovereignly choose some out of the, the, the plethora of created men and women, but Paul tells us that he did so before the foundation of the world. That literally means in eternity past before the creation, before the fall, before the covenants, before the law, believers were sovereignly predestined by God to be His. In other words, friends, redemption is a forethought, not an afterthought. Redemption is a forethought, not an afterthought. Paul says that in Romans chapter 8. He says, for those whom He foreknew, which foreknow in the original language really means to forelove. He foreknew us in eternity past. Implication He foreloved us in eternity past. Why? Because we deserved it? Absolutely not. But because our God is in heaven and he does what pleases him. The fact that election took place before the creation of the world indicates that God's choice was due to his own free decision and not dependent upon our human merit. Calvin writes this, He said the very time of election shows it to be free for what could we have deserved or in what did our merit consist before the foundation of the world? Nothing, nothing. Spurgeon says it this way, if God hadn't chosen me before the foundation of the world, he certainly wouldn't have chosen me after. We're a hot mess, friends. God didn't choose the elect because there was anything intrinsic to them that was worthy of being chosen. Scripture is clear about the fact that the whole human race fell incalculably short of his glory. Paul writing in Romans chapter 3 reminds us that none are righteous. No, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks for God. And so as a lost sinner left to his own ways, he can't seek God. can't understand God. Paul makes clear just 5 chapters later in Romans chapter 8 he says for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God it does not submit to God's law indeed it cannot implication here no one deserves to be chosen if you're sitting here this morning and you know Christ savingly it's not because you deserved it it's not because i deserved it it's because God is good and kind and merciful and benevolent God isn't obligated to save any, but he does. Furthermore, if God hadn't taken the initiative and chosen some, no one would be saved. But when we're thinking from our limited, blurry, prideful human perspective, we sometimes get all up in arms over the fact that God hasn't chosen everyone. But the real question that we ought to be asking, friends, is not why hasn't God chosen everyone, but rather why has God chosen anyone? Why has God... Why me? Why? Why? You, have you considered? Why me? It's not because of me. That's what makes grace, grace. That's what makes it so humbling and so overwhelming. Is that it had nothing to do with me. The very fact that God has not washed his hands of all of us and let us all go to hell in a handbasket, which is what we rightfully deserve as a consequence of our cosmic treason. That's what sin is. It's cosmic treason. And the very fact that God hasn't let us all go to hell in a handbasket is a marvelous display of his mercy and his grace. You see, when we consider the nature of our sin and rebellion, the fact that God hasn't chosen everyone to be saved, is not as hard to reconcile or to come to grips with is the fact that God has chosen anyone to be saved. You see, sovereign election, it's not a harsh, unloving doctrine to recoil from. Quite the opposite is true, friends. God's sovereign election, if you know Christ savingly, if you're found in Him, God's sovereign election should form a bedrock of confidence in you as a believer. Think about this. A God who chose you before the foundation of, of the world, a God who chose you before time, will never leave you as a casualty to the times and tides of life. In other words, His choosing you should give you the confidence that He'll complete what He started and He'll carry you all the way home. The election doesn't carry a man halfway only, it carries him all the way. It doesn't merely bring him to conversion, it brings him to future glorious perfection. In Christ, Jesus will get the reward for which he died, and he'll lose not one that was given to him. What about evangelism and the sovereignty of God? Let me just say something brief here. Some have misunderstood God's sovereign election, and they've misunderstood it in such a way that they've come to the conclusion that God's sovereignty in election removes any necessity for evangelism. We call that hyper-Calvinism. That's not where we are as a local church. We appreciate the doctrines of grace, oftentimes attributed to Calvin, called Calvinism or Calvinistic theology, but we would reject hyper-Calvinism, which says because God is sovereign in election, because God does all the choosing, then there's absolutely zero need for us to be sharing our faith because everyone whom God has decreed before the foundation of the world will come to know Christ with or without me. Oftentimes, people on their deathbed give you some of the most weighty closing remarks. Let me just draw your attention to Jesus' last words. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Surely I'll be with you always, even to the very end of the age. God's divine sovereignty and election and our responsibility to be conduits of the gospel message, go hand in hand. God not only has ordained the redemptive plan, but he's also ordained the means of that plan. And you are the means if you know him. What a privilege. What a privilege. We've got just a few minutes here left together. Let me draw your attention to point five on your outline. God is purposeful in election. God is sovereign in election, He's gracious in election, and He is purposeful in election. Let me draw your attention to the concluding phrase in verse 4. Paul writes that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. Paul wraps up verse 4 by giving us the purpose or the goal of our election. And the purpose and the goal of our election is positional and practical holiness. Notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say here in verse 4 that that God in eternity past looked down through the corridors of time and, and he elected us because he foresaw that we were going to be holy. That's not what Paul says. Rather, God elected us freely by his own choosing so that we who were chosen might be holy and blameless before him, could be holy and blameless before him. You see, the divine purpose in our election wasn't only to repair the damage, done by sin, but also to fulfill God's original intention for humankind, namely that we would bear resemblance to God's Son, that we would be conformed more and more into His image and His likeness. I think it's important to note that while God's ultimate goal in election is holiness and blamelessness, when we appear before His presence, the text says, That in no way suggests that there should be no concern for holiness and blamelessness in the here and now. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us that apart from holiness or without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Practical growth and holiness is the telltale sign of a genuine conversion. If you're not growing in holiness, we're all growing at differing rates. But if you're not growing in holiness, if there is not the bud of holiness that is beginning to open in your life, then we should be asking a whole new set of questions. You can't live like hell and hope to one day reside in heaven. Election ultimately results in holiness. Jesus told his disciples, men will recognize you by your fruit. We all bear fruit. You either bear the fruit of unrighteousness or you bear the fruit of righteousness, but we're all fruit bearers. So the question is, what type of fruit are we bearing? Are we bearing the fruit of holiness, which is a telltale sign of genuine conversion or election? Are you concerned about holiness? Is it on your mind? You see, holiness and blamelessness, that's our legal status in Christ But those who are legally holy and legally blameless before God should also be seeking to live lives that are practically unblemished and blameless here. We need to be ever mindful of the fact that we are living in front of a watching world. We're going to walk out those doors this afternoon, and we we are living our Christian lives in front of a watching world. Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Are we shining brightly? Are holiness and blamelessness evident, growing, imperfect, positionally, or practically rather, positionally we're perfectly holy, we're perfectly blameless. That's our legal status in Christ, in Him. Practically, we're being made holy, we're being made blameless. Are we growing in that? Are we shining brightly? You see, election brings privilege, but make no mistake about it, it also brings responsibility. It brings privilege, but it also brings responsibility. Notice that Paul says that we are to be holy and blameless before him or in the presence of him. Understand this, it's not what you are in the estimation of men that counts on that final day, but it's who you are before him that counts in the final day It's not what you are in the estimation of men but it's who you are before him on that day are we found in christ clothed in his righteousness let me say just uh, we're out of time i got zeros on my clock up there but i just got them so i'm not far over <laughs> paul ends the text this morning with that short phrase in love and the question is, does that phrase, in love, does it, does it go with verse 4 or does it go with verse 5? What does that phrase, in love, qualify? Most of your Bibles probably keep in love with verse 4. Now, keep in mind, verse divisions, chapter divisions in your Bible, as helpful as they are, they're not inspired. We have put those there as an aid to help us study, to help us memorize, to help us know and learn and love God's Word. God's Word is infallible. Inspired in Aaron, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. But where we put 4, 5, 6, 7, this title, heading, we put that there for our aid. Some Bibles put in love with verse 4, some with verse 5. If we keep it with verse 4 there, then what Paul's saying is we've been chosen by God and we should mark, be marked by holiness, blamelessness, and love. But if in love, on the other hand, goes with verse 5, then it expresses God's attitude towards us when he predestined us for adoption as sons. Let me say this. Either place you put it, it's theologically consistent. Either place you put it, it's theologically consistent. Having said that, I think in love goes better with verse 4 than with verse 5. God's intention and election is to produce holiness, blamelessness, and love in the life of every believer. What Jesus told his disciples? He said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. How? By your love for one another. you growing in that? Are you growing in holiness, blamelessness, and love? Some of the telltale signs of a sure election, of a sure conversion. If you're here this morning you don't know Christ, we would encourage you to repent and believe. Right where you sit, Cast yourself upon the matchless mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Call on Him to be saved. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you that it instructs us. Thank you that it teaches us doctrine. High theology that lifts our eyes and lifts our hearts above our feeble understanding and sets it on you. Thank you for your electing love. Thank you that you've chosen some, although none merited. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.